the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this hazy Tuesday afternoon. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program, and we're grateful to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with uh, June Casagrande. She's the author of The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. She'll be joining us later this hour. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with the stream's John Smirak. You might recognize the name. He's also the recent author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. He was my guest just a week ago. Uh, We're going to talk about the real threat to democracy today. We're going to talk about the impact of Antifa and how uh, government officials are responding and accommodating uh, their violent actions and what that... um, Uh, Looking back historically, what that uh, reminds us of. We're also going to talk with Harry Crocker III. He's an historian and novelist. His forthcoming book is Alternative History Fiction, Army Strong, the Custer of the West series. Uh, We're going to talk about America's next civil war and what uh, the Republic needs in order to stay together. And we'll talk with Jeremy Schumacher. He's the director of uh, Church Next for the Conservative Baptist Northwest. We're going to talk about the Men's Roundup. It's that time of year again, and it's a great opportunity for men to live in community and what a great facility um, the uh, Camp Tadmore is and we'll talk more about all of that but you are invited to come bring your friends with you this is going to be a great time for guys Jeremy Schumacher will join us later in the five o'clock hour well everyone should reduce prolonged or heavy exertion we're being told and consider staying inside when possible that's according to the Environmental Protection Agency the air quality for Portland and I imagine southwest Washington has been downgraded rather to unhealthy by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. Wildfires from the north and the south have brought more haze into the metro area. So as you look out, that's what you're seeing. Portland's Air Quality Index, or AQI, was 163 today. That was this morning, a rating higher than 150, which is considered unhealthy for everyone. AQI measures how many particles are in the air. So if you have respiratory challenges, this is especially important for you. Everyone should reduce prolonged or heavy Exertion and consider staying inside, according to the EPA. People with heart or lung disease, older adults and children are at greater risk and should avoid prolonged or heavy exertion. Wildfire smoke continues to pour into the area from wildfires in British Columbia uh, to the north um, into the uh, area. Uh, as well as fires burning in southern Oregon. So those are converging to create the kind of smog, the fog, the smoke that we're seeing. Temperatures are expected to stay high uh, today, of course, uh, in the mid-90s, low 90s on Wednesday before it cools down, but just slightly. Thursday, it's uh, going to be a a bit cooler and into the weekend, some cooler temperatures and the possible return of clear skies. So we have something to look forward to. The sky should also be less smoky as westerly winds um, are moving in our area, but uh, just an air quality alert for the Portland area, and I would imagine southwest Washington as well, considered um, unhealthy. 
Well, several hundred Roman Catholic priests in Pennsylvania were accused of sexually abusing more than a thousand children. A grand jury report today said in an alleged cover up described as sophisticated by the state's attorney general. Over the course of a two-year investigation launched by Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro's office, a grand jury heard several witness statements and poured over documents from six dioceses in the state. Now, that's an important thing to know. The information they poured over, these were documents from the diocese, uh, six of them in the state itself. So they came from the direct source. Uh, those dioceses um, included Allentown, Erie, Greenberg, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, and Scranton, upwards of 300 predator priests and accused of the decades-long abuse, the report said. The cover-up was sophisticated, and all the while, shockingly, church leadership kept records of the abuse and the cover-up, Shapiro said at a news conference. These documents from the diocese's own secret archives formed the backbone of the investigation. He went on to say, it's possible that the real number of abused children could be in the thousands due to missing records or other victims who feared speaking about the allegations, according to the grand jury's report. In order to prevent the Catholic Church from suffering bad publicity or financial liability, the panel claimed that a series of bishops and other diocesan uh, leaders attempted to hide the alleged abuse. Again, this is from the report. The report faulted Cardinal Donald uh, Whirl, the uh, former longtime bishop of Pittsburgh, who currently leads the Washington Archdiocese, for what it said was his part in the concealment of clergy sexual abuse. Whirl defended himself, releasing a statement today that said he had acted with diligence, with concern for the victims, and to prevent future acts of abuse. Well, this will not be the end of that story, but this is what the report that was released uh, earlier today had to say. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with June Casagrande. She's the author of The Joy of Syntax. So stay with us. Nineteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Some of the developing stories for the day, several gubernatorial primary races across the country will be closely watched today as Republicans hope to weaken Democratic control in New England and progressive voters look to, no- to uh, nominate the nation's first ever transgender candidate for governor. President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, told Fox News' Sean Hannity that former CIA director John Brennan should face a grand jury for his role in spreading Trump steel dossier information that allegedly helped launch the Russian investigation. President Trump is denying Omarosa's uh, claim that he used the N-word on the set of The Apprentice as the war of words between the White House and the former reality star continues. Oh, the drama, when will it end? A car has slammed into barriers and pedestrians outside the House of Parliament in Britain, sparking terror fears. An FBI official, Peter Strzok, has been fired over anti-Trump texts and a GoFundMe page set up since his firing has raised some $200,000. Disturbing details of the extremist Muslim compound that allegedly trained children to kill teachers emerged on Monday as a judge cleared the way for five defendants to be released on bond. Apparently, they're not a danger. And prosecutors in the fraud trial of ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort rested their case on Monday. He did not testify. The defense could call its first witness on Tuesday.
And on this day in 2003, a huge uh, blackout hits the northeastern part of the United States and part of Canada. Fifty million people are without power. And on this day in 1945, President Harry S. Truman announced the Imperial Japan has surrendered unconditionally, ending World War II. Some of you remember that day, that announcement. And on this day in 1935, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Social Security Act into law. Today, lots of young people wonder whether or not it will still be there when they come to retire. Well, President Trump announced the uh, authorization of $717 billion for military funding over the next year. The president said Monday that the new beefed-up defense spending bill would provide U.S. soldiers with a significant pay increase and in family housing. We are proud giving uh, we are proudly rather giving our troops the biggest pay increase in a decade. The president said the bill is aimed at rebuilding the U.S. military by authorizing a total of $717 billion for military funding over the next year. More than $11 billion is allocated for military military construction, including family housing. We will replace aging tanks, aging planes and ships with the most advanced and lethal technology ever developed, the president said. He made the remarks at the signing of the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019 at Fort Drum Army Base in New York. The H.R. 5515 bill was named after the longtime Arizona senator and chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He has not been in the Senate for some time as he is being treated for a brain tumor. Uh, the, this is the earliest signing of the National Defense Authorization Act in 40 years. It's a giant step to rebuilding uh, the military as well. Well, it's all about the governors in today's primaries as voters in several states pick their party's candidates for races such as uh, seen as competitive in November. Many candidates are hoping to uh, to make history. The first transgender woman or man running for governor in Vermont, a 14-year-old gubernatorial hopeful who needed his parents' permission to run, and a former Minnesota governor who wants his seat back after nearly a decade away. The Me Too movement may also have some influence over some key races in Tuesday's primary, primarily in uh, Minnesota. Representative Keith Ellison's campaign for Minnesota Attorney General was thrown uh, for a loop after an ex-girlfriend publicly alleged that he emotionally and physically abused her during the course of their relationship. Um, Her son first alleged in a Facebook post that he had seen hundreds of angry text messages uh, from uh, the sitting uh, member of Congress, including some that were threatening. He also claimed he saw a video in which uh, he... um, uh, the lawmaker dragged his mother off the bed by her uh, by her feet. Well, whether or not that will have some impact is um, as remains to be seen. Aside from Ellison, the Democrat uh, farmer labor race includes country uh, rather county attorney Tom Foley, state uh, representative Deborah Hillstrom, attorney Matt Pikeham, and Minnesota Commerce Commissioner Mike Rothman. Ellison was uh, considered the heavy favorite leading up to the primary, given his fundraising advantage, <clears throat> excuse me, and leadership in the Democratic National Committee. As for the Republicans, former state representative Doug Wardlaw and longtime hunting and fishing guide Bob Lazard, also a former state senator, are vying for the GOP uh, nomination. Currently, the Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson is running for governor in the state as a Democrat. Democrat Hillary Clinton, uh, Clinton won Minnesota in the 2016 uh, ed- uh, election with 46.9 percent of the vote compared to President Trump's 45.4 percent.
Republican Governor Phil Scott is running for re-election and is favored so far to win, but the Democrats have some candidates running who could make history. Christine Halquist is the first openly transgender uh, to run for governor in the United States, a former CEO of the Vermont Electric Cooperative. Halquist is focused on combating climate change and implementing universal health care in the Green Mountain State. Um, Ethan Stonebaum wants to make uh, history with his candidacy for governor. He lived in Vermont for 14 years all of his life. A teenager needed his parents' consent to sign off on his candidacy and collect enough signatures to make it onto the ballot. Uh, it's on um, on uh, us to build our own future, he told the Washington Post. You've got to get involved. You've got to vote. You've got to knock on doors. It's how we're going to make changes that we want to see in the state. Environmental activist James Elners and uh, Brenda Seigel, a dance festival organizer focused on combating the opioid crisis, are running in the Democratic primary. There are others as well, but these primaries, of course, uh, focusing primarily on gubernatorial races, will have a significant impact moving forward in a number of, uh, of areas. Well, Omarosa Manigault Newman's claim about the recording of the president, then a civilian, using the N-word, are being disputed by an ever-growing list of current and former officials calling into question a key passage in her newly released political tell-all. Well, passages. Uh, Manigault uh, Newman's claim first surfaced this week in a media blitz to promote the book Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House, which hit shelves today in interviews and the uh, book. She claims she uh, confirmed rumors of an old tape from The Apprentice in which the uh, well, not president then, which Trump used the racial slur. It's unclear at this point whether she. Uh, ever heard the alleged tape or whether it exists, but multiple former and current officials close to the president have denied her claims. Former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski told Fox News that he never heard any tape. I have never heard the president use that word ever, Lewandowski said, adding that there was never a conversation about a tape and that it was never brought to his attention. This is now a pattern of individuals who have worked inside the building who are trying to uh, profiteer off of their relationship with the president. Lewandowski went on to say, it's too bad. It's shameful in our country, and the president deserve better. Well, I suppose when you hire someone off of a reality television show, I'll just leave it at that. Well, the defense for Paul Manafort rested their case yesterday without calling the ex-Trump campaign chairman to the stand to testify in the bank and tax fraud case against him, addressing the court for the first time during his trial, Manafort stood up and told Judge T.S. Ellis III that he did not want to testify. After two weeks of testimony from prosecution witnesses until now, it had been unclear whether the defense would put forward witnesses or evidence of their own. Special counsel Robert Mueller's team rested their case Monday afternoon. The trial now heads to closing arguments set to begin tomorrow morning. Ellis, the judge, told both sides to limit those arguments to one and a half hours. Hours each. Manafort is facing tax evasion and bank fraud charges after being accused of hiding income earned from his Ukrainian work for the from the IRS. He's also accused of fraudulently obtaining millions in bank loans. He has pled not guilty to the charges. The judge on Tuesday also ruled against the defense's motion to acquit. The trial was delayed for about two hours on Tuesday after the morning proceedings began under seal and were closed to the public and the press. Last week, the prosecution star witness Rick Gates, Manafort's former business partner, who struck a plea deal uh, to cooperate with the government, testified that he and Manafort committed bank and tax fraud together. He won't face charges, most likely. Being a star witness, Manafort uh, could spend the remainder of his life in prison. 
And there's no information that indicates the Clinton-funded opposition research, research rather, launched the FBI's Trump investigation in three articles uh, that uh, appeared in The Hill last week. Investigative uh, journalist John Solomon revealed previously undisclosed text and email discussions between former Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr and former MI6 agent and Spygate dossier author Christopher Steele. Solomon's uh, reporting also uncovered notes Orr took summarizing discussions he had with Steele's boss at Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, about the Russia collusion investigation. In isolation, the details revealed in Solomon's must-read expose are troubling, but when considered in conjunction with information related to the Russia investigation the government previously released, this new information is potentially devastating because it indicates that, notwithstanding claims to the contrary, the Federal Bureau of Investigation launched Operation Crossfire Hurricane based on Steele Clinton Steele's Clinton-funded opposition research. The conclusion flows from an email exchange revealed in Solomon's first article that established that Orr met with Steele on the 30th of July, 2016, in Washington. Orr brought his wife, Nellie, to the breakfast gathering. Nellie has long been reported, worked for Fusion GPS, also on the Trump opposition research project. That end-of-July meeting followed emails exchanged earlier in the month in which Steele told Orr, there is something separate I wanted to discuss with you informally and separately. It concerns our favorite business tycoon. An apparent reference to Trump, Solomon explained, noting that Steele's reaching out to Orr uh, came just uh, four hours before Steele walked into the FBI office in Rome with still unproven allegations that Trump had an improper relationship with Russia, including possible efforts to hijack the presidential election. And while we do know the details discussed on the or rather do not know the, de- the details discussed at that particular meeting on July the 30th, 2016, uh, the uh, the morning meeting with the uh, uh, Ors appears related to Steele's request to chat about their favorite business tycoon. Significantly, as Solomon reported, that meeting occurred exactly one day before FBI counterintelligence official Preter Strzok formally opened an investigation dubbed Crossfire Hurricane into whether the Trump campaign was colluding with Moscow to steal the election. You can read more um, of these uh, series of articles. There are three of them. Uh, at the Hill, and Mr. Solomon is the uh, the author, John Solomon, if you'd like to follow that more closely. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with uh, June Casagrande, author of The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. We'll be back. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When it comes to grammar, it seems like everyone, even the diehard word nerds, as my next guest refers to some of us, feels we're missing something. The joy of syntax picks up where sixth grade left off. Language columnist June Casagrande, she presents a fun and pretty breezy guide to everything a grown-up interested in grammar needs to know, providing a fresh foundation in English syntax served up by someone with an impressive record, making this otherwise inaccessible subject 
well, the true joys. With uh, simple, pithy information on everything from basic parts of speech and sentence structure to usage and grammar pitfalls, this guide provides everything you need to approach grammar with confidence. Now, I have to admit, I'm a little nervous about just doing the interview because I'm just certain I'm going to say something incorrectly, but I'm going to soldier on. Well, June Casagrande's syndicated grammar column, A Word, Please, runs in newspapers in five states. She is the author of four grammar books, including It Was the Best of Sentences, It Was the Worst of Sentences, and The Best Punctuation Book, period, and is the face and voice of the Grammar Underground weekly podcast. She works as a freelance copy editor for the advertising department at the Los Angeles Times and uh, for several local and national newspapers. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgie. Well, I have to admit, my my, uh, producer and I, we've had several conversations about this conversation, both of us being a bit nervous about whether or not we would carry ourselves well. But you point out that for people who care about grammar, that many of us have a dark secret. And in the introduction, you write, there are holes in our knowledge, big ones, despite all that natural ability and hard-earned learning. We feel that we never got a good, solid foundation in grammar. And your book, The Joy of Syntax, is designed to help fill in that gap. That is what I hope to do for adults because, as you expressed just a moment ago, so many of us have have anxiety about the subject. There's so many, it feels like there's so many opportunities to embarrass yourself, but the minute (laughs) you think about it, you realize that there are holes in your knowledge and you need to be careful or else you can get in trouble. And in fact, grammar isn't as difficult or as intimidating as a lot of people believe. Well, I appreciate hearing you say that, and the book helps to make that point because it helps us to understand those things that we're not quite secure about. Now, let me ask you, we're living in the 21st century where oftentimes spelling is not as uh, emphasized as it was when I was growing up several decades ago, uh, where syntax may not be taught as rigorously as it was when I was in school. That's when dinosaur roamed the earth. Is it still important today that we understand and know proper grammar and syntax? That is up to you, and that is up to each of your listeners individually. And if you want to be successful in realms where this is valued, then yes. If you've got other priorities, like working three jobs to feed, you know, to, to feed a family, then perhaps not. But um, I compare it in the book to propriety, being really proper in language, is sort of similar to wearing a suit, If you're going on a job interview, you might find it appropriate to wear a suit if that interview is for an office situation. If you're at a barbecue with the family, you're probably not going to wear a suit. So it's up to you how much you want to conform to the rules of propriety. So we really have a choice in the matter, but it's always good to start from a place of being informed rather than being ignorant. If we know what the proper thing to do is, then perhaps we can we can have a little bit more flexibility. You write in the first chapter, does someone who says ain't have bad grammar? How about someone who eschews whom? What about the writers who leave their participles dangling and their infinitives split? Does someone who misuses hyphens have bad grammar? What about someone who's just a poor speller? Now, let's begin by talking about the word grammar. You said there are several meanings. Uh, Tell us what grammar is and and how we should understand it as we attempt to uh, at least practice fairly good grammar. 
I like very much your assessment of the situation as, as, as a sort of knowledge is power. Yes, understanding and knowing this stuff is a great basis to start and a great place, great place to break the rules once you know them. Um, regarding what grammar is, a lot of people, and I assume a lot of your listeners, have a negative association with it as a sort of list of, a list of no-nos. Here are all the things you'll get in trouble for doing. Dangling a participle, splitting an infinitive, beginning <laughs> a sentence with the word and. And when you start looking at the sum total of those supposed no-nos, it starts to read like there's almost a penal code for grammar, <laughs> almost like there's a list of laws that you're not supposed to break. In fact, there is no such list, and the only real no- laws of language sort of evolve from what you and I are doing right now, which is communicating. That is syntax, the actual mechanics of language, how we put sentences together to get our, our ideas across, is called syntax, but it's also under the larger umbrella of grammar. So that first stuff, the whether you can use the word among to mean between and so on, we can call that usage. And how the sentences are constructed, we can call that syntax, and they both can be described accurately as grammar. Now, when you were growing up and you were being taught for the first time, um, there probably wasn't a lot of joy initially. How did you come to, first of all, grasp grammar, syntax so well and to, to love it and be able to communicate it to others so that those of us who are somewhat insecure can feel a little bit better about how we construct our, our, our words? Well, folks who feel insecure about this and ask about my personal overcoming of that insecurity are often happy to hear. I was a ninth grade dropout. I dropped out of uh, out of school after the eighth grade for a whole bunch of reasons that I would bore you to tears talking about. But uh, and then I got into college when I was about nineteen, and I started taking a real passionate interest in learning things. And I noticed that one of the most interesting things in French class was all this grammar stuff, verb conjugations. I had never noticed that we say, I am, you are, he is, she is. That's called conjugating the verb to be. And taking a French class, having basically no high school under my belt, taking a college-level French class, I found this stuff exciting and cool. It just resonated with me. So I think for many of us, we don't learn uh, learn this very well because the context in which we are taught isn't very compelling. It's difficult to understand. You know, I already know how to talk. Why is it important that I know how to construct a sentence well? And in that, that what is it, fifth, sixth grade, it can be a real challenge to, to see why this is important and how it all fits together. So it's a, it's a difficult time, I think, for many of us to pick it up. But as adults, we might grasp it a bit easier. Did, yeah, but did you or did you not find it interesting when you were in middle school or elementary school that adjectives describe things and adverbs do this? Did that at all sound, oh, that's neat, they do, on your ender? Yeah, there were certainly parts of it that were interesting, and then there were parts of it that it got less interesting <laughs> as we went along. <laughs> I can definitely agree with that. Well, let's talk about how the book is structured. The first part of the book is titled Syntax. The second part, Usage and Propriety. Talk uh, to our listeners about how this is structured and how we might revisit these things that we learned many years ago. Well, the usage and propriety stuff are the things that people are most worried about and concerned with, those little issues they're afraid they're going to get their knuckles wrapped on. And so that's included in there to help people navigate those little issues and to help them worry less about them. 
The syntax portion of the book is about that deeper understanding of how sentences work. And once you get into the nitty-gritty, once you understand that a sentence can have a whole modifying phrase followed by a main clause that's modified by other stuff, you start to understand how you can reconstruct sentences to make your own communication more effective. In speech, this isn't necessarily that important because when we talk, we're pretty good at getting our point across. But when we write, people get all discombobulated and they get all caught up in that. And so knowing that you have multiple ways to construct the same sentence, some of which will emphasize this aspect of your point, some of which will emphasize this aspect, is, is a powerful tool. It's a powerful way to get people to hear your message when you want your message to be heard. We're talking about the book, The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. And I appreciate that as you read through the book, there's no one there to tap your knuckles with a uh, with a ruler. You can take it at your own pace and revisit some of those things that you're a little bit insecure about. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with June Casagrande, the author of The Joy of Syntax. She has a bit of an impressive background of her own and helps us in a fun way uh, to study, well, what does grammar look like and what uh, what... Uh, How can we answer those questions we're not entirely uh, confident about? So we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Let's see. Syntax, the arrangement of words and phrases to create well-formed sentences in a language. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Let's see. Prepositional phrases, adverbials, parts of speech, double genitive, verb forms, conjunctions. Well, if your head is spinning like mine often is and trying to remember what all of that is, how it fits together in uh, in a good sentence, we're talking about the book The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I've uh, I've enjoyed looking things up that I wasn't sure about, but now I'm a little more confident of. Uh, my guest uh, this afternoon is June Casagrande. She's the author of The Joy of Syntax and has a rather impressive um, uh, background of her own. And we're just talking about uh, how we can uh, better understand the language that we all speak and love. She is a syndicated grammar columnist. Uh, a word, uh, please, runs in newspapers in five states. She's the author of four grammar books, including It Was the Best of Sentences, It Was the Worst of Sentences, and The Best Punctuation Book, period, and much, much more. Thank you so much for for uh, joining us uh, to talk about the joy of syntax and emphasize that word joy. It doesn't have to be drudgery. It can be something that we learn to enjoy once we have a clear understanding of what it is we're trying to do and to do it well. And then we're free to deviate if we choose to, but then we recognize that we're choosing to do that rather than out of ignorance, stumbling into something we might not have otherwise uh, done. What are some of your um, uh, your pet peeves in terms of mistakes that we commonly make that we're unaware of, but if we were made aware, uh, would certainly change. There are a lot of words that are easy to confuse uh, that people do all the time. And it's not a peeve of mine, but it's just unfortunate to see Mm -hmm. it happen because it's a big mistake. For example, pedal, P-E-D-A-L, like you do on a bike, or pedal, P-E-D-D-L-E, which means to sell something, or 
P-E-T-A-L, which is a part of a flower. It's very easy to confuse words like this, and it's always a little unfortunate because it looks like an oopsie. People notice. Yeah, yeah. What about dangling participles? That's one of mine. These are, there are some terms in language that just scare the pants off of people, and that's <laughs> one of them. A, a, a dangling participle, this, a dangling participle falls under the category of danglers, which is a larger group. And all that means, if you want to boil it down to something really useful, is make sense. So if I say, walking down the beach, my shoulders got sunburned, I'm not making sense because technically I'm suggesting my shoulders were walking. Not me. <laughs> That's what's called a dangling participle. The participle part is walking, that I-N-G form when it's used in that way as a participle, and it's dangling off the sentence in a way that's not really hitting its mark. It wants to say that while I was walking down the beach, my shoulders got sunburned, but accidentally we have walking shoulders. So that's a dangling participle for you. Yeah. I think one of the things I appreciate about the book, it not only helps to correct some of the mistakes that we make because we're not uh, certain of of what uh, tack to take, but it also reassures us on things that we are getting right. And so I found that it was sort of balanced things that, oh, yeah, that's not entirely correct. Uh, I found that, but I also found that uh, I, I was... Uh, the things I'm doing well and correctly were reinforced because I now am confident of what the rules are. Good. I'm glad to hear that. That's, that's my goal is to help people find it accessible because so many of us just didn't get the tools we need to be comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. And the language, you know, English language can be so difficult. I know for those who are learning it as a second language, the example you gave earlier, pedal, pedal, and pedal, <laughs> can make it very difficult for us to know. Sometimes it's a matter of simple spelling. Sometimes it's understanding what... Um, words mean that sound very similar. Is the English language evolving in a way that the rules that I learned, I before E except after C, uh, are changing along with it? Every language is evolving in a way that the rules are changing along with it, and they will continue to until the end of, uh, till the end of mankind. That's what languages do. They evolve. And, uh, and kind of embedded in your question, I hear a hope that it's eventually working towards something more simple and logical. <laughs> because I had a conversation once with a native Italian speaker, and I said, here's an example of how difficult English is. Tough, though, through, thought. When you look at those words written down, they don't sound alike. Trough, there's another one. Mm-hmm. They're all very similar, but they're so different and, and nearly impossible for a non-native speaker to learn. So over time, what languages do is they sort of conform to the needs of the speakers, and often those needs of speakers do things like take the word through and shorten it to T-H-R-U, and in the process, when these evolutions are taking place, they're mistakes for a while, they're wrong for a while, and eventually they become right, and this is the never-ending process of language. And my favorite example is the word girl. A couple centuries ago, girl meant a child of either sex. And now it means specifically a child of the female sex. Did that cause some confusion in the interim? We can guess it did, but this is the never-ending process of language. So yes, the I before E except after C will survive to the extent it's useful, but slowly, <laughs> <laughs> slowly all, things must, uh, all things must fade. Oh, my. Well, just when I was about to feel like I, <laughs> I could arrive, they've uh, moved the goalpost. Yes, yes, that's what language does. It throws you off your game. 
Now you um, are you write a syndicated grammar column, uh, a word please. It runs in newspapers in five states. What do you find uh, people most interested in when it comes to uh, grammar in that kind of a column? Is it just simply the rudimentary mistakes that we make, or are people uh, interested in in uh, comparing the English language, for example, to other languages and the challenges we face? What kinds of things are your readers interested in? My readership tends to be. Um a lot older, and, and someone who's, who's getting to be my age should never use that term, but, um, <laughs> except in reference to dinosaurs. But, um, uh, but it, it runs in small newspapers in small communities. It's inserted in the L.A. Times in a couple communities. But the people who read newspapers are a little different than the people who read Twitter. <laughs> so um, so uh, these are a lot of people who went to school in the 50s and 60s who are distressed to see the language values they were taught no longer being represented. And I have to talk a lot of them off the cliff. I have to talk a lot of them (laughs) down off the cliff and say, it's okay, it's not a law being broken, it's a natural evolution. Uh, And sometimes I get people writing me to tell me specifically, to tell readers to stop doing something, (laughs) which is... (laughs) Which is um, which is almost endearing in the in the in the presumption that anyone listens to me. <laughs> um, I uh, if I had that power, I would certainly extend it far beyond the realm of language. But <laughs> that's, telling telling them to stop misspelling the word "eek" is not where I would start if I had the power to tell people what to do. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be where you'd start. Uh, what yeah. about the the misuse, the overuse of like? A thing isn't a thing, it's like a thing. You can use different words for interjections, and when you do, you risk annoying people. <laughs> um, I get two complaints about the word like. One is the interjection, like how he's always talking, like, don't you know, like, that yes. is both standard and understandably abrasive. <laughs> um, and the other one is the use of the word like as a substitute for said, to be like as a substitute for said. So he was like, I'm leaving. And she was like, no, you're not. That's one of those in-transition terms that is becoming standard, even though at X point in the past 50 years, a century, I'm not sure, it would have been an incorrect use of like. The language is adopting this and incorporating it, and it looks like it's going to continue to. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) You don't like that one. No, no, I do not like that one. (laughs) Understandable. So the truth is, it's probably not possible that we can save ourselves from our our use of uh, language. We need to be uh, prepared to adapt, but learning the rules can help us navigate in the world as it changes um, and know what at least historically was accepted. And and to show that you are observing the conventions of any situation you're in, like that job interview where you're wearing this suit. If you want to show people that you know the term beg the question is not originally something that means ask the question, people will say, oh, well, this situation begs the question of whether X, which is not how that term originated. That term originated as a um, logic term with a very specific meaning, referring to one of several very specific logical fallacies that I personally don't fully understand. And so it was an error at first to say begs the question 
to mean raises the question. That's no longer the case, but if you say, if you avoid that usage, it's, it's a cue to other people who value that one particular language rule that you are aware of it and value it. Well, we can distinguish ourselves, at least among the few who are still observing convention. Well, I appreciate so much uh, your writing the book. I certainly will keep it by my bedside, and I'm looking forward to revisiting other um, elements in the book that I'm just not entirely secure in. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Georgina. It was my pleasure. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Again, uh, June Casagrande is the author of The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. I have to admit, when I was reading through parts of this, you know, adverb phrases, uh, nominal clauses, I I start to glaze over just a little bit, but I am going to go through the whole thing uh, more slowly and, you know, try to fix some stuff. Fix some stuff probably wasn't very good. I'll have to work on that. Up next, we've got, uh, what, news and traffic. When we return, we'll talk with um, The Stream's John Zmerak. He's also the author of um, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. We'll talk with Harry Crocker III about the America's next civil war and Jeremy Schumacher about the upcoming uh, men's roundup. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Well, after the white supremacist march this weekend, the media would have you believe that white supremacists are the real threat to democracy. There were a mere 20 people at that march. Well, the stream's John's Mirac reflects on the real threat to democracy today. Antifa. Uh, He uh, writes for the stream and joins us to talk about the media's race baiting and how Antifa is, in fact, the real threat to our freedoms. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. Good to be on. Well, there was a lot of hype uh, leading up to the uh, white supremacist event that took place uh, over the weekend. It fizzled from that uh, side of the ledger. Uh, But one of the things that you have done and did a year ago when Charlottesville was a major issue uh, was to point out the violence on both sides of that uh, that confrontation. Let's let's begin by talking about Charlottesville 2017 and what the president got right and what the media got wrong. Right. Well, what happened at that time was 200 white supremacist losers gathered pretending to defend Confederate monuments, but in fact, they were just promoting a hate agenda. And I think, I think it was an insult to, to the Confederates and to the defenders of the mm-hmm. monuments that these people grabbed onto their cause. Uh, but the, the, uh, and then thousands of these violent, have, well-armed with sticks and bats, Antifa leftist thugs showed up, and the mayor told the police not to keep the two marches apart, completely violating every, every police practice, where when you have two angry sets of demonstrators and you think they might get violent, you keep them apart. You put two or three lines of cops between them. But no, the Charlottesville mayor apparently wanted a violent, bloody riot, so he told the police not to keep them separate. Guess what? There was a violent, bloody riot. One white supremacist drove a car into a crowd and killed a woman. One a member of Antifa created a homemade flamethrower and was trying to burn people alive. 
Okay, that didn't get that much media coverage. And in fact, various liberal magazines tried to make a hero out of the guy who tried to burn people alive for disagreeing with him politically. Okay, because he was on their side. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, there were violent street fights between the Nazis and the communists. And in that, at, in that time, the government didn't enforce the law neutrally, didn't keep the violent protesters apart. It let them fight it out, and then it arrested and prosecuted one side. It went after the communists, but it let the Nazis go. When Hitler tried to overthrow the government in 1923 through an armed coup, and they should have put him up against a wall and shot him. That's what the law said. Instead, a judge who was sympathetic to the Nazis because he was afraid of the communists gave Hitler two lousy years in a very comfortable prison with a typewriter on which he wrote Mein Kampf. And within 10 years, he was the dictator of Germany. Right now, what we're seeing is mayors like the one in Portland or in Charlottesville are siding with Antifa. They're cutting, the media is siding with Antifa. They're making excuses for them. They're not showing video. When they get video of them attacking reporters, they're not showing it. They're not covering things like a, an all-white group of Antifa members terrorizing the black woman Candace Owen of, of Turning Point USA. She was eating in a restaurant with her colleague, Charlie Kirk. An all-white mob descended on her, started screaming that she was a white supremacist, dumped food and water over Charlie Kirk's head, and ran them out of the restaurant. They had to run outside to where there were some black police officers. The white Antifa members came out and were shouting racial epithets at the black police officers. How is this okay? And again, they're standing against the white supremacist or the alt-right. So there were no white supremacists. Exactly. This was a, an but ordinary I'm, black conservative and white conservative Republican mainstream person. Exactly. Can't even eat breakfast in a restaurant. But their pretext is that they're they're allowed and given greater latitude because that's their goal. The the enemy is uh, is so reprehensible that they are permitted to to engage in this kind of activity. We saw it here exactly in exactly what in happened the, with the Nazis. Yes. The Nazis were given free reign in order to stop the communists. And we saw this right here in Portland, where the African American ICE officer reported uh, how she was treated, uh, uh, being yelled at with racial slurs. We have the Hispanic officer reporting anti-Hispanic slurs, and they're permitted because uh, of a hatred for a a differing point of a political point of view um, that tends to line up with those in in authority. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, And it's extremely dangerous when you suspend the rule of law and allow one group that's willing to use political violence to get away with it. Look, it happened in the South all the time with the Klan. The, the authorities let the Klan terrorize black people for a oh, hundred years after, after, after the Civil War. So th- this is not something that's alien to America. You know, remember when all white juries used to acquit lynch mobs that killed black people? Um, it's an extremely dangerous thing, and yeah. we can't let it ha- keep happening in America. So with this election... It, it, this, this midterm election is a referendum on whether Trump effectively stays president, because if the Democrats win the House, they will turn the entire government into a nonstop show trial impeachment of the president. So Republican candidates need to hang Antifa around the necks of their opponents. Do you condemn Antifa? I condemn the alt-right. Do you condemn Antifa? And I guarantee you most of them won't. Because they're afraid of alienating their activists and their donors who sympathize with these extremists. And what they say, what the left is trying to do is to make every supporter of Donald Trump and the president out to be connected to the alt-right. But, you know, there's a scientific study just came out. The Institute for Family Studies, it's not a conservative think tank, came out and they found out what percentage of white voters in America support the alt-right. You know what it is? Six percent. Six. Donald Trump did not win with six percent of the vote. 
Okay, he, he got 50% of the vote. So that means that for, at, 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 most, at least 44% of Trump supporters are being slandered, being lied about when they're accused of being racists. Now, you point out that the Cato Institute um, asked similar questions to those who support uh, the kind of activity that uh, Antifa is involved in. And what were the percentages there of people who consider themselves strong liberals and thought um, physical violence in the in the name of their cause was acceptable? Yeah, the Cato Institute found that 51 percent of people who consider themselves strong liberals think it's okay to punch someone if you consider them a Nazi. Not, you know, no proof, no, not necessarily, you know, just somebody you think might be, seems to be a Nazi. And remember that the left tends to accuse people of being Nazis for very frivolous pretexts. They're already trying to accuse every Trump supporter of being a member of the alt-right and effectively a quasi-Nazi. So if 51% of strong liberals think what Antifa is doing is okay. So you point out that uh, candidates should raise this issue and and press Democrats uh, to oppose uh, the the activities of Antifa. That's not likely going to happen. What hope do we have moving forward um, that they are going to be confronted in a strong way uh, that will strip them of their power and the the waiving of the rule of law as it applies to them in these various confrontations? I think the only way is where local governments won't prosecute, there need to be federal civil rights charges against them. That's the only way we shut down the Klan, and it's the only way we're going to shut down Antifa. And I think the Trump Justice Department needs to step into action and start launching civil rights cases against these people who terrorize people, who beat people up, who who prevent people from speaking on campus, who assault people and don't get charged. Um, These need to be federal actions. Well, I appreciate your column. In fact, I've put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so our listeners can read it in its entirety. Uh, the challenge is there, and I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us about it. Thank you, and please check out my new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. Thank you so much. Uh, again, uh, John Zmirak, writing for The Stream, and of course we uh, spoke with him recently on that book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. You can find out more on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page about that as well. Uh, I wanted to point out that here in Portland, um, uh, we've seen a significant amount of the racist um, violence uh, from Antifa here with law enforcement and ICE agents who are disproportionately African-American and Hispanic. Uh, and you can read more about that in this column, again, uh, at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Written, uh, It's a stream article written by my guest, John Smirak. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Well, after the white supremacist march this weekend, the media would have you believe that white supremacists are the real threat to democracy. There were a mere 20 people at that march. Well, the stream's John Zmirak reflects on the real threat to democracy today, Antifa. Uh, He uh, writes for the stream and joins us to talk about the media's race baiting and how Antifa is, in fact, the real threat to our freedoms. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. Good to be on. Well, there was a lot of hype uh, leading up to the uh, white supremacist event that took place uh, over the weekend. It fizzled from that uh, side of the ledger. Uh, But one of the things that you have done and did a year ago when Charlottesville was a major issue uh, was to point out the violence on both sides of that uh, that confrontation. Let's let's begin by talking about Charlottesville, 
2017 and what the president got right and what the media got wrong. Right. Well, what happened at that time was 200 white supremacist losers gathered pretending to defend Confederate monuments, but in fact, they were just promoting a hate agenda. And I think, I think it was an insult to, to the Confederates and to the defenders of the mm-hmm. monuments that these people grabbed onto their cause. Uh, but the, the, uh, and then thousands of these violent, have, well-armed with sticks and bats, Antifa leftist thugs showed up, and the mayor told the police not to keep the two marches apart, completely violating every, every police practice, where when you have two angry sets of demonstrators and you think they might get violent, you keep them apart. You put two or three lines of cops between them. But no, the Charlottesville mayor apparently wanted a violent bloody riot, so he told the police not to keep them separate. Guess what? There was a violent bloody riot. One white supremacist drove a car into a crowd and killed a woman. One a member of Antifa created a homemade flamethrower and was trying to burn people alive. Okay, that didn't get that much media coverage. And in fact, various liberal magazines tried to make a hero out of the guy who tried to burn people alive for disagreeing with him politically. Okay, because he was on their side. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, there were violent street fights between the Nazis and the communists. And in that, at, in that time, the government didn't enforce the law neutrally, didn't keep the violent protesters apart. It let them fight it out, and then it arrested and prosecuted one side. It went after the communists, but it let the Nazis go. When Hitler tried to overthrow the government in 1923 through an armed coup, and they should have put him up against a wall and shot him. That's what the law said. Instead, a judge who was sympathetic to the Nazis because he was afraid of the communists gave Hitler two lousy years in a very comfortable prison with a typewriter on which he wrote Mein Kampf. And within 10 years, he was the dictator of Germany. Right now what we're seeing is mayors like the one in Portland or in Charlottesville are siding with Antifa. They are cutting, the media is siding with Antifa. They're making excuses for them. They're not showing video. When they get video of them attacking reporters, they're not showing it. They're not covering things like a, an all-white group of Antifa members terrorizing the black woman Candace Owen of, of Turning Point USA. She was eating in a restaurant with her colleague, Charlie Kirk. An all-white mob descended on her, started screaming that she was a white supremacist, dumped food and water over Charlie Kirk's head, and ran them out of the restaurant. They had to run outside to where there were some black police officers. The white Antifa members came out and were shouting racial epithets at the black police officers. How is this okay? And again, they're standing against the white supremacist or the alt-right. So but there were no white supremacists. <laughs> exactly. This was a, an ordinary black conservative and white conservative Republican mainstream person. Exactly. Can't even eat breakfast in a restaurant. But their pretext is that they're they're allowed and given greater latitude because that's their goal. The the enemy is uh, is so reprehensible that they are permitted to to engage in this kind of activity. We saw it here exactly in exactly what in happened the, with the Nazis. Yes. The Nazis were given free reign in order to stop the communists. And we saw this right here in Portland, where the African American. ICE officer reported uh, how she was treated, uh, uh, being yelled at with racial slurs. We have the Hispanic officer reporting anti-Hispanic slurs, and they're permitted because uh, of a hatred for a a differing point of a political point of view um, that's that tends to line up with those in in authority. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, it's extremely dangerous when you suspend the rule of law and allow one group that's willing to use political violence to get away with it. Look, it happened in the South all the time with the Klan. The, the authorities let the Klan terrorize black people for a oh, hundred years.
after 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 the Civil War. So th- this is not something that's alien to America. You know, remember what all white juries used to acquit lynch mobs that killed black people. Um, it's an extremely dangerous thing, and yeah. we can't let it ha- keep happening in America. So with this election. It, it, this this midterm election is a referendum on whether Trump effectively stays president. Because if the Democrats win the House, they will turn the entire government into a nonstop show trial impeachment of the president. So Republican candidates need to hang Antifa around the necks of their opponents. Do you condemn Antifa? I condemn the alt-right. Do you condemn Antifa? And I guarantee you most of them won't. Because they're afraid of alienating their activists and their donors who sympathize with these extremists. And what they say, and what the left is trying to do is to make every supporter of Donald Trump and the president out to be connected to the alt-right. But, you know, there's a scientific study just came out. The Institute for Family Studies, it's not a conservative think tank, came out and they found out what percentage of white voters in America support the alt-right. You know what it is? Six percent. Six. Donald Trump did not win with six percent of the vote. Okay, he, he got 50% of the vote. So that means that four, at, 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 mo- at least 44% of Trump supporters are being slandered, being lied about when they're accused of being racists. Now, you point out that the Cato Institute um, asked similar questions to those who support uh, the kind of activity that uh, Antifa is involved in. And what were the percentages there of people who consider themselves strong liberals and thought um, physical violence in the in the name of their cause was acceptable? Yeah, the Cato Institute found that 51 percent of people who consider themselves strong liberals think it's okay to punch someone if you consider them a Nazi. Not, you know, no proof, no, not necessarily, you know, just somebody you think might be, seems to be a Nazi. And remember that the left tends to accuse people of being Nazis for very frivolous pretexts. They're already trying to accuse every Trump supporter of being a member of the alt-right and effectively a quasi-Nazi. So if 51% of strong liberals think what Antifa is doing is okay. So you point out that uh, candidates should raise this issue and and press Democrats uh, to oppose uh, the the activities of Antifa. That's not likely going to happen. What hope do we have moving forward um, that they are going to be confronted in a strong way uh, that will strip them of their power and the the waving of the rule of law as it applies to them in these various confrontations? I think the only way is where local governments won't prosecute, there need to be federal civil rights charges against them. That's the only way we shut down the Klan, and it's the only way we're going to shut down Antifa. And I think the Trump Justice Department needs to step into action and start launching civil rights cases against these people who terrorize people, who beat people up, who who prevent people from speaking on campus, who assault people and don't get charged. Um, These need to be federal actions. Well, I appreciate your column. In fact, I've put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so our listeners can read it in its entirety. Uh, the challenge is there, and I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us about it. Thank you, and please check out my new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. Thank you so much. Uh, again, uh, John Zmirak, writing for The Stream, and of course we uh, spoke with him recently on that book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. You can find out more on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page about that as well. Uh, I wanted to point out that here in Portland, um, uh, we've seen a significant amount of the racist um, violence uh, from Antifa here with law enforcement and ICE agents who are disproportionately African-American and Hispanic. Uh, and you can read more about that in this column, again, uh, at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Written, uh, It's a stream article written by my guest, John Smirak. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back.
Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you tomorrow we are looking forward to spending our time with the uh, Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge for our first radiothon with this organization that has been ministering in our community for decades. So while this may be a new uh, connection for us here on KPDQ, they certainly have been working in our community and very effectively helping uh, men, women, and young people with addiction issues um, come to terms with that and through an encounter with Christ and their year-long program uh, make a real difference and break that uh, that addiction. So we're going to talk with them about that. And more importantly, we're going to let you know of their financial needs moving forward. So we will be asking you to consider the stories of the, of the individuals from our community that you're going to be hearing and consider how you might financially support by way of sponsorship for a period of for one year uh, these men and women who need our help. As you can imagine, uh, this kind of a ministry can be very costly. And if we can help to underwrite some of the expenses of these individuals, we can make a big difference uh, in our community. And I think um, even more importantly, the kingdom of God. So we're looking forward to uh, having a long conversation tomorrow and throughout the day here on KPDQ as we partner with the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge for our first radiothon uh, here. Well, back in 1908, Lucy Maud Montgomery published what would become one of the most popular books for kids in the last century. Its heroine was an 11-year-old orphan girl adopted by a brother and sister on Prince Edward Island, Canada. Yeah, I'm talking about Anne of Green Gables. Well, over the years, the beloved story has been turned into several movie and TV adaptations, with the latest series entitled Anne with an E released on Netflix, Netflix rather last year. Well, Netflix uh, recently released the second season of the show, and it is painfully apparent that the current rendition is promoting what has become almost obligatory for all TV shows these days, the mantra that homosexuality is good. So we're imposing back on 1908 or even a period before then a 21st century uh, mindset. Well, in one of the episodes in season two, and you need to be uh, aware, parents, uh, Anne, her friend Diana Berry, and a boy named Cole attend a gathering at Diana's great aunt Josephine's home, where a party of cross-dressing men and women have gathered to honor the memory of Josephine's departed partner, Gertrude. D- did you follow that? Uh, Breakpoint um, Eric Metaxas describes the scene. He's had the opportunity to see it and brought it to my attention. Looking around, he writes, uh, looking around her, Anne explains to Diana, isn't this the most amazing group of people? Well, I can't help thinking that if a sheltered young girl like Anne actually encountered cross-dressing men and women in 1908, she would be shocked and probably frightened, not delighted. Well, in the scene that takes place in Aunt Josephine's bedroom, Anne observes a novel on Josephine's nightstand. Gertrude was reading it the year before. Josephine tells her the books sit just where she left them. Anne processes this remark and then, enlightened, says, that's what you meant by in your way. You were married, she says. Yes, Josephine replies. Well, Diana, who is nonplussed by her discovery of her aunt's relationship with Gertrude, tells Anne their love affair was unnatural. But the boy Cole, a character who is invented for the TV series and was never in the mind of Lucy Maud Montgomery, he soon straightens her out. If your aunt lived her life feeling that she was broken, defective, or unnatural, and one day she met someone that made her realize that wasn't true, shouldn't we be happy for her? Well, Cole later confesses to Aunt Josephine that he thinks he is like you and Gertrude. Josephine tells her, you have a life of such joy before you, end quote. Well, the cultural appropriation of uh, of classic stories whose authors never would have dreamed of advancing 
um, uh, advocating for what at the time was rightly uh, re- viewed as unacceptable and, and deviant behavior has become not only commonplace, but even obligatory. Putting this agenda into emotive stories with characters we love is a uh, full of entertainment as indoctrination, and it's a powerful elixir for adults, never mind children. But full acceptance, promotion, and celebration of the LGBT uh, identity and lifestyle is fast becoming the only permissible opinions for individuals to hold. Anything less may one day literally become a crime. Unless you think we, uh, we're exaggerating, we're not that far off from that uh, ultimately being the case. So Anne of Green Gables is Anne of something else these days, at least the Netflix uh, version of it. Many of you saw the television series, you fell in love with it, and you want to share that with your children, maybe your grandchildren. But just be aware that the story as uh, rendered back in 1908 by Lucy Maud Montgomery is not the story that's being um, developed by Netflix. And that was just one example of a 21st century uh, view being imposed on Little Anne of Green Gables back in her time. Wanted to give you a heads up. On the program on Thursday, I mentioned we have our Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge Radiothon coming up tomorrow. Thursday, we're going to talk with Katie Reed. She is the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Women who, uh, the Woman Who Gets Things Done. So if you've always felt a little bit bad because you are more like Martha than you are um, Uh, Mary, this is a book for you, giving us an indication of the value of getting things done, the the art of getting things done and the value that that brings to the kingdom as well, as long as it's balanced with uh, the more uh, valuable things that Jesus references in that infamous scripture in which Martha is confronted for being too busy while Mary is uh, has chosen the better part. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with Katie Reed. And for those of you who are more like Martha, the name of the book, this is going to be good news because you get things done and uh, how to do that right without crossing that line that Jesus uh, made so clear. Also, I want to remind you that I have uh, posted a copy of uh, John's Mirax uh, column that was written for the stream having to do with um, Antifa and the threat that it poses to democracy. And he makes the connection, you know, the, the word Nazi is being thrown around by people who probably have very little understanding of the history and the uh, the formation and how they came to power. He makes the argument that Antifa and uh, our culture today is following the similar pattern that we saw with Nazi Germany, where um, uh, they were uh, tolerated. The, the Nazis were tolerated as uh, idealists. They were rough around the edges with their hearts in the right place. They were vigorous and even dangerous, but at least they were fighting the greater evil, the real threat. And at that time it was the communists. So the authorities in Germany treated the Nazis as their authorities, um, as our authorities rather are treating Antifa today. And it's a, it's a fascinating article putting in historic context, uh, some of the challenges we face today. So you can check that out at the Georgine Rice show Facebook page, Uh, And I would encourage you to take the time to read it. Once again, tomorrow, the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge Radiothon. Please plan on listening and come prepared to help uh, support young people, men and women who need our help in walking away from and breaking the addiction of uh, drugs and alcohol and into the arms of a loving Savior who has a life that is full and rich um, and prosperous ahead. And on Thursday, Katie Reed, Made Like Martha, good news for women, for the woman rather, who gets things done. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you tomorrow we are looking forward to spending our time with the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge for our first radiothon with this organization that has been ministering in our community for decades. So while this may be a new uh, connection for us here on KPDQ, they certainly have been working in our community and very effectively helping uh, men, women, and young people with addiction issues um, come to terms with that and through an encounter with Christ and their year-long program uh, make a real difference and break that uh, that addiction. So we're going to talk with them about that. And more importantly, we're going to let you know of their financial needs moving forward. So we will be asking you to consider the stories of the, of the individuals from our community that you're going to be hearing and consider how you might financially support by way of sponsorship for a period of well, one year uh, these men and women who need our help. As you can imagine, uh, this kind of a ministry can be very costly. And if we can help to underwrite some of the expenses of these individuals, we can make a big difference uh, in our community. And I think um, even more importantly, the kingdom of God. So we're looking forward to uh, having a long conversation tomorrow and throughout the day here on KPDQ as we partner with the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge for our first radiothon uh, here. Well, back in 1908, Lucy Maud Montgomery published what would become one of the most popular books for kids in the last century. Its heroine was an 11-year-old orphan girl adopted by a brother and sister on Prince Edward Island, Canada. Yeah, I'm talking about Anne of Green Gables. Well, over the years, the beloved story has been turned into several movie and TV adaptations, with the latest series entitled Anne with an E released on Netflix, Netflix rather last year. Well, Netflix uh, recently released the second season of the show, and it is painfully apparent that the current rendition is promoting what has become almost obligatory for all TV shows these days, the mantra that homosexuality is good. So we're imposing back on 1908 or even a period before then a 21st century uh, mindset. Well, in one of the episodes in season two, and you need to be uh, aware, parents, uh, Anne, her friend Diana Barry, and a boy named Cole attend a gathering at Diana's great aunt Josephine's home, where a party of cross-dressing men and women have gathered to honor the memory of Josephine's departed partner, Gertrude. D- did you follow that? Uh, Breakpoint um, Eric Metaxas describes the scene. He's had the opportunity to see it and brought it to my attention. Looking around, he writes, uh, looking around her, Anne explains to Diana, isn't this the most amazing group of people? Well, I can't help thinking that if a sheltered young girl like Anne actually encountered cross-dressing men and women in 1908, she would be shocked and probably frightened, not delighted. Well, in the scene that takes place in Aunt Josephine's bedroom, Anne observes a novel on Josephine's nightstand. Gertrude was reading it the year before. Josephine tells her the books sit just where she left them. Anne processes this remark and then, enlightened, says, that's what you meant by in your way. You were married, she says. Yes, Josephine replies. Well, Diana, who is nonplussed by her discovery of her aunt's relationship with Gertrude, tells Anne their love affair was unnatural. But the boy Cole, a character who is invented for the TV series and was never in the mind of Lucy Maud Montgomery, he soon straightens her out. If your aunt lived her life feeling that she was broken, defective, or unnatural, and one day she met someone that made her realize that wasn't true, shouldn't we be happy for her? Well, Cole later confesses to Aunt Josephine that he thinks he is like you and Gertrude. Josephine tells her, you have a life of such joy before you, end quote. Well, the cultural appropriation of uh, of classic stories whose authors never would have dreamed of advancing 
um, uh, advocating for what at the time was rightly uh, re- viewed as unacceptable and, and deviant behavior has become not only commonplace, but even obligatory. Putting this agenda into emotive stories with characters we love is a uh, full of entertainment as indoctrination, and it's a powerful elixir for adults, never mind children. But full acceptance, promotion, and celebration of the LGBT uh, identity and lifestyle is fast becoming the only permissible opinions for individuals to hold. Anything less may one day literally become a crime. Unless you think we, uh, we're exaggerating, we're not that far off from that uh, ultimately being the case. So Anne of Green Gables is Anne of something else these days, at least the Netflix uh, version of it. Many of you saw the television series, you fell in love with it, and you want to share that with your children, maybe your grandchildren. But just be aware that the story as uh, rendered back in 1908 by Lucy Maud Montgomery is not the story that's being um, developed by Netflix. And that was just one example of a 21st century uh, view being imposed on Little Anne of Green Gables back in her time. Wanted to give you a heads up. On the program on Thursday, I mentioned we have our Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge Radiothon coming up tomorrow. Thursday, we're going to talk with Katie Reed. She is the author of Made Like Martha, Good News for the Women who, uh, the Woman Who Gets Things Done. So if you've always felt a little bit bad because you are more like Martha than you are um, Uh, Mary, this is a book for you, giving us an indication of the value of getting things done, the the art of getting things done and the value that that brings to the kingdom as well, as long as it's balanced with uh, the more uh, valuable things that Jesus references in that infamous scripture in which Martha is confronted for being too busy while Mary is uh, has chosen the better part. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with Katie Reed. And for those of you who are more like Martha, the name of the book, this is going to be good news because you get things done and uh, how to do that right without crossing that line that Jesus uh, made so clear. Also, I want to remind you that I have uh, posted a copy of uh, John's Mirax uh, column that was written for the stream having to do with um, Antifa and the threat that it poses to democracy. And he makes the connection, you know, the, the word Nazi is being thrown around by people who probably have very little understanding of the history and the uh, the formation and how they came to power. He makes the argument that Antifa and uh, our culture today is following the similar pattern that we saw with Nazi Germany, where um, uh, they were uh, tolerated, the, the Nazis were tolerated as uh, idealists. They were rough around the edges with their hearts in the right place. They were vigorous and even dangerous, but at least they were fighting the greater evil, the real threat, and at that time it was the communists. So the authorities in Germany treated the Nazis as their authorities, um, as our authorities, rather, are treating Antifa today. And it's a, it's a fascinating article putting in historic context uh, some of the challenges we face today. So you can check that out at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, uh, and I would encourage you to take the time to read it. Once again, tomorrow, the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge Radiothon. Please plan on listening and come prepared to help uh, support young people, men and women who need our help in walking away from and breaking the addiction of uh, drugs and alcohol and into the arms of a loving Savior who has a life that is full and rich um, and prosperous ahead. And on Thursday, Katie Reed, Made Like Martha, good news for women, for the woman, rather, who gets things done. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.